Hello and welcome to Too Fit to Be Tied. Where we talk about health from a variety of perspectives. Emotional health. Mental health. Physical health. And spiritual health. My name is Jerome. And I'm your co-host, Constance. Welcome to another episode of Too Fit to Be Tied. What are we talking about today? We're just getting right to it today. Um, we have a guest today. All right. You know, there are like, there are some therapists that have been really wanting to get on our show. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that's good, right? It's good. I mean, this one approached me. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I know, right? We're really growing. So we are currently at over 7,000 listeners. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this is, uh, you know, we're growing and we're doing things. Yeah. Probably because of my vision board. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah. So we can quit our day jobs at some point. <laughs> is, is, is that's, what the, you're saying. that's the hope, right? That's the hope. So uh, today we are speaking to a therapist. His name is Miles. We're going to get some information on him straight from the source. But he is an associate licensed marriage and family therapist. Okay. And he deals a lot with substance um, and alcohol abuse, which is kind of interesting being that he's a marriage and family therapist. That is very interesting. So I guess we got to get him on the phone All so right. we can. We're just going right to it today. So we can talk about it. Hello, hello. Hi, Miles. How are you? I'm great, Constance. How are you? I'm good. We like get right, st- we get started quick. So you are on mic, although everything's editable, and you're here with Jerome. Hey, Miles, uh, nice to meet you, and thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, Jerome, no, happy to be here, and I'm glad we were able to, to move quickly along and, and find a time that works for both of us. I've listened to some of the stuff that you guys have done, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here and, uh, and participating. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Yes, absolutely. We're all on the same team here as wellness people. So I love whenever that. I, Excellent. Yes. And I don't know if Constance told you, but um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm here in Oak Park as well. So we're also. Uh, we're neighbors. Yeah. We're Oak, Oak Parkers together. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm in, I'm in Forest Park, but that's, we're still neighbors. It's still a park and yeah. I'm in Elmwood Park. So yeah. we're all so we're parks. All, we're all in parks. Yeah. Uh, other side of Madison, other side of Harlem. Yes. Yeah, we're just yeah. <laughs> very cool. We'll have, to, we'll have to get together at some point. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. We'll do coffee. Would love to. All right. So tell us, I, I just kind of explained that you were um, an associate licensed marriage and family therapist, but you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you specialize in substance abuse and alcoholism, correct? So yes, I am a marriage and family therapist and I do see... Uh, couples and individuals, I would say about equally. And then within sort of that broad purview, a lot of the work that I do is in the treatment center environment, which, um, as I'm sure we'll get into a little bit today, um, is definitely a family oriented treatment field. Cause whenever you have someone who has developed alcoholism or is, you know, addicted to substances or process addiction, um, that is a family problem. Um, it affects everyone within a family unit. And um, so I would say that like, while my specialty is 
um, substance use disorder, my primary background and my education in marriage and family therapy is still useful. So everything sort of touches everything in a way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, okay. No, I think that's really actually interesting because when you said that to me originally, I was like, well, how does that relate? And then when you explained it, just like you did now, it was like, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. You're not just treating the one person or the one thing. It does affect the entire unit. Yeah, the, the system for sure. Um, and it's, it's a field that, um, um, you know, I'll, I'll just get into, like, I guess a little bit to like my own story. Like my own story was, um, you know, sort of, I, I started in counseling because I myself had a number of issues that I went through in my early twenties. And on the other side of that, you know, I saw what it did to my own family and the way that it can just rock the foundation, um, for, you know, the, the people that love, you know, you as an individual, um, and, you know, after I got out of treatment and I, I cleaned up myself and was able to help other people, it was amazing to see that when you help an individual that's, that's suffering through addiction, they're drinking, um, and you get to see a family reunited and, you know, the person who might have been considered previously, you know, the black sheep or the outcast gets to reintegrate into their family circle. It, it really is um, an incredibly rewarding, um, thing. And, um, it's, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I, I enjoy doing every day. Do you find that when you were going through your own treatment, it was a lot, it was more effective talking to somebody who's been through it versus somebody who just has the education? Yeah, because I think that's a great question. And you know, you can always, you know, they, you say, you see this and it's said in treatment centers everywhere. The people who are addicts who have been through their own addictions can always tell when there's someone who has an academic understanding of addiction versus a personal understanding of it. Mm. Um, it is, uh, I think for a lot of people, it's really challenging to conceptualize if you're like, like, why are you doing this behavior that's destroying you? Like if you're drinking or if you're drugging or you're gambling or you're pornography or gaming or whatever, if it's so destructive to you, like, why don't you just stop doing this? Like there's, a um, to a lot of people who don't suffer from addiction, it's, it's difficult to wrap their heads around. But yeah, for me, the, like the, the counselors that I worked with where I went to treatment, everyone at the center that I went to was someone who was formerly in recovery that was now sober helping other people get clean. So yeah, I think it's totally invaluable. Um, that's not to say, though, that you can't be uh, an individual who um, isn't in recovery who's helping addicts. But I do think it's a, a huge value add for people. And when you're working with families, um, what does it take for, what does it take from the family members of the person who's dealing with an addiction for that treatment to be successful? Yeah, that's a great question, Jerome. It's, um, I think it has a lot to do with what the living situation is like, right? So in, in a lot of cases, like we would have a, a teenager who has developed maybe like, let's say an opiate addiction and lives at home with mom and dad, but like stays in their room, doesn't come out. Maybe it's a, a cannabis thing, a weed thing. Um, I think that the family needs to understand that 
when you're living with an addict, that person understands uh, and is hurt by being otherized. So sometimes I think when people isolate and retreat from their families, it's because they're feeling judged. Um, they're feeling like if they're honest with their family, their family won't accept um, their struggles and just tell them to clean themselves up and get it together. Um, so there's a lot of guilt, Jerome, and there's a lot of shame. Mm. Um, and that's something that if the family isn't able to give the person in recovery or who's trying to get sober love and acceptance and forgiveness, the possibility of recovery goes down. Um, because the person still feels in early recovery, um, like they're the bad guy. My family will never accept me. Um, so in that way, it can be a really vicious cycle. But on the other point, on the other side of that, Jerome, you, you, you also can't be overly kind and turn a blind eye to them getting back into old habits and old behaviors and be too permissive. So it's a fine line between, I think, being stern with your family member who's in recovery and honest with them. Um, and also being um, kind and asking them what they need and how that how you can help. Yeah, well, that's interesting because that that was going to be you. You sort of read my mind there with the uh, with my follow up question. It's like, how do you teach the family members to um, to not bring shame upon the person, but also not enable, enable them, them really, too yeah. much? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say that a lot of the the uh, the aftercare steps for a person in recovery um, do not revolve around a person returning to live with their family um, after treatment. In uh, you know, a lot of places, including kind of the treatment center that I worked with um, here in Naperville, Illinois, we were always trying to find what we call sober living for people following treatment because it is it's really challenging to have like a, a family member who you're either living in close proximity with um, because that might not be a great environment for them and their habits and their behavior might be adversely affecting their family. Um, so space can be really helpful um, and keep in contact. Let's say the best care that you can do for your family member or your loved one in recovery is find them a living situation that's, you know, a sober living is what we call it, where a number of people who are all in recovery live in a house together um, and they have rules and regulations and they go to 12 step meetings together. Um, and then their families um, are obviously open to call them. Like they have, they have cell phones and like you can still make contact with the outside, but in, but in order to step away from um, addiction, active addiction, um, creating a little bit of separation mm-hmm. so that the person can reestablish their own kind of their footholds in life before moving forward. Now, tell us more. I mean, obviously, every situation is different, but what is the approach that you take with the individual that has the substance abuse or, you know, addiction um, issue? Is it that they have an addictive personality? Is it that they just have gotten into habitual, you know, um, I mean, again, everything is, it's always different, but what's your approach Mm. to um, you know, working with clients like that? When, when I'm working with someone, I, my core belief, Constance, is that addiction is a symptom. Mm. Um, 
And a, a symptom of what is what I am trying to ultimately get down to. Okay. Um, so I think everyone, like all of us, right? Like we deal with discomfort on a daily basis. Um, whether that discomfort comes when um, we have anxiety, like getting out of our car and going into work, um, whether it's when we get home and we see our kids and we don't have a lot left in the tank after our day of work or we're having problems with our spouse, like there's just discomfort, social situations. And a lot of people meet that discomfort with substances, whether that's coffee to get through your meetings or booze to, you know, ice over your, your evenings. Um, I'm trying to understand guys, why it is that you're seeking something to alter your mood. So for some people, that's going to be anxiety that they feel like, Oh no, like without this drink, I'm not going to be relaxed and fun to be around in a social situation Mm. or depression. Like if I don't, take my Adderall in the morning or go to the gym twice a day, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and be unhappy with I see with what I see in it. And it caused me to spiral. So I'm, yeah, I am trying to peel back the curtain and figure out what it is that these substances or these, you know, uh, habits are doing for the individual and then use that as a jumping off point to um, work on deeper stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, is is there a most common reason that people are looking to um, to handle this pain with substances? So you're asking, like, if there's a a, a most common reason why people drink or use drugs or engage in like uh, just addictive behaviors? Exactly. Yes. I think it would depend on the therapist that you asked, Jerome. Uh, Some of my colleagues would say that it's all about trauma. And that people's traumas in life lead them to the uh, <laughs> lead them to using substances to cope with bad things that happened with them in the past. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think it's always trauma. Hmm. Um, I think that there's a great amount of uh, anxiety in just the present these days, guys. Like with technology and the amount of uh, stimulation that I think we have in this day and age, I think a lot of people just struggle with the moment Um, with holding their thoughts and um, decompressing after a long day and like not having loud music on and not having the TV on and not having their phone on. I think silence um, and the anxiety surrounding silence is, I think is the greatest contributor to addiction these days. Hmm. That's interesting. That is very interesting. Um, Now, do you ever, do you ever find that you have, you know, patients that maybe, you know, you start to treat the, let's call it bad addictions and they sort of start substituting with maybe better, you know, good, good activity, but like it becomes more obsessive or addictive. Like, you know, somebody finds church and then it's like they're obsessed with that or somebody finds fitness and they become obsessed with it. Um, does that happen frequently or have you seen that happen? Yeah, guys. And I think this is a great, I think this is a great topic. I know that you guys are really involved in the fitness community. And I, I want to say like, you know, on air with you guys that like, I think we call it addict energy. Mm. So like in, in, in people that I see that are in recovery, like, you, you know, even myself included, 
Um, we're the kind of folks that when we find what we like and we sink our teeth into it, it's really hard for us to let it go. But once we let go of something, we do. We always search for the next thing that we really want to get invested in. Um, I know at a lot of treatment centers where I came from, we had a, there were CrossFit gyms that people who were in early recovery would go to and would just go head over heels into CrossFit and into exercise. So, yeah, we definitely do see people in recovery. And it's not just exercise, of course, but um, people in recovery um, quickly finding something else that they really sink their teeth into. Um, and while we always, and I, I try to educate my clients that you need to keep an eye out for addict behavior, which is like, you'll hear some people in recovery say, you know, I could, I could turn, um, anything into drinking. Like I'll take anything to the extreme Mm. given enough time. Um, so I, we do encourage people to be aware that addict behavior and getting really, really engaged in things quickly can lead you to dangerous positions. But, um, within the context of like the danger of the life that they were living previously, like I like to be pretty permissible with that kind of thing and encourage people, um, you know, like you have, you know, addicts kind of energy. And that means that like, you're going to get better at things quicker. You're going to be more proficient at learning because you can be a little obsessive. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's channel that into something productive, right? If someone was a, a drinking day in and day out alcoholic and they wanted to go to the gym three times a day, I think as long as their caffeine intake was manageable and they weren't killing themselves, better that's a, than where we were. That's an acceptable trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, yes. it's funny you mentioned this addict energy because I have been dying to ask this that question about, you know, people taking things to the extreme, even in a good way. Through the fitness industry, I've seen people where I'm like, I'm telling, like, I have nailed it, where I'm like, this person would definitely get involved in a cult. Like, you could just see it. (laughs) They have, like, cult energy. (laughs) Or this person is so obsessive about their workouts that sometimes I wonder how some people manage their, like, marriages or, you know, their relationship with their kids because, um, their working out schedule is just so it is really prioritized, mm-hmm. but to an extreme, you know. Did you consider yeah. becoming a cult leader? Sorry, that- <laughs> <laughs> no, but like as a as a trainer, as a as a fitness instructor, people sometimes look at you like like you're some kind of guru, and it's like, whoa! If I was a cult leader, you would definitely join. You know what I mean? Yeah, you thought about it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, so Miles, so when, when someone has this, um, you call it addict energy, and you, talk, yeah. you talked about before um, getting to, um, about, the, about the addiction being a symptom, if, you, if you're able to get at the, the core of what's causing the addiction, does the addiction energy then go away, or do some people just have this extra level of addict energy? I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, no, it does. It does. Um, I think that, I think that people, Jerome, who have addictive personalities, um, will always have addictive personalities. Um, you know, there are some folks in this world that, you know, I'll I'll take like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a, a hit of a joint in college, smoke a little bit of pot, 
and put it down and say, that was interesting, but I'm going to go over here and do something else now. Right. And then there yeah. are other people, Jerome, who will take that hit of pot and be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever had before. I never want to do anything else. Mm. Um, right. The, and I, there's a lot of genetic, you know, research that goes into why that is. We don't have great answers for that yet. Um, but if you have addict energy and you have an addictive personality, you're going to have to look out for that for the rest of your life. I think that therapy will help you understand why it is that you seek um, consistent sources of feel good and that, you know, and why maybe it's harder for you to just sit with your feelings. Um, But no, I don't think that addictive energy or addict behavior ever go away. I think people that have it need to keep an eye out for it for their whole life. But there's a lot of positivity to it too. Um, you know, means that you have the ability to learn things quickly. You can get really invested in certain hobbies and get really engaged and involved in things quickly. Um, hmm. You're likely pretty outgoing. No, um, it makes, I mean, as, as you were saying that, it makes sense. It's just, you know, if, if it wasn't, if, if it wasn't for the, I don't know, the, the, uh, the substances that cause the addictions, these people would probably be just amazing at whatever they did. <laughs> Yeah. Now, tell us, what is the, like, I could see the reward in your job. I could see where it would be so rewarding to see that you've really made a difference in somebody's life and that, you know, you sitting with them and going through therapy has has really changed them and their family um, for the better. What is the worst part of your job? Like, what's the hardest part? Yeah, not worst. He loves well, not worst, the, but the I mean, hardest, you know, like the most the challenging, hardest, yeah. the most challenging aspect of your. He's Jerome's always making me sound better. Thanks, Jerome. You're welcome. You it's kind, it's kind of my really thing. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, the the hardest part of my job is that not everybody makes it. Oh. Um, the the unfortunate outcome of the field is that our society has. Um, one of the greatest opiate epidemics, not to really bring a rain cloud here, but I think it's important to, to be totally transparent about a, a societal problem that we have here in the States and the world over, really. Is that, um, the opiate epidemic is far-reaching and unbelievably lethal. And there are more people that are dying of drug overdoses right now in the States than have ever died of drug overdoses ever. Um, and... Uh, while I work with a population that is a little bit more stable, there's a little bit more alcoholism and a little less hard drug addiction. Um, I know that a lot of people that I've worked with and done some of my best work with guys um, just are unable to stay honest with themselves Hmm. and downplay the severity of their problems and go to treatment four or five, six times, never quite get it right and lose a lot of their lives, you know, to their addictions. So that's, that's the hard part. And, uh, I try to separate, you know, my own work from those outcomes that I can do what I can do and I can share my story and do things like this and talk to you guys 
and just try to get the message out there that there is help out there. There is, um, there are people that care and can help you. Um, but it's all about the individual, you know, at the end of the day, you guys probably know this as trainers, right? Like, you know, we can, we can do as much as we can for people, but they're the one who are here to exercise. Mm-hmm. Like they're yeah. the one who has to get up and come out here and do the work. Yes. Um, now when you, when you talk about the, the, uh, opioid epidemic, um, is there any, I don't know, research on why it's as big as it is? Is it just the availability of the drugs or is there something that people are, are missing? They're, they're lacking in their lives that caused them to want to numb mm. themselves. Well, I, there's, there's been a lot of, I think in the beginning of all of this, um, there was the, you know, sort of as a little history lesson really quick, like in the, you know, kind of mid aughts Purdue Pharma, you know, released OxyContin, which was a really powerful opioid painkiller that was prescribed widely for people with any amount of chronic pain and overprescribed historically. And um, there were a lot of people who got hooked on these very high-powered pain medications um, and communities that had never been hooked on heroin um, because it wasn't in those communities, suddenly found themselves inundated with high-powered painkillers for their, you know, their tweaked back or their bad joints. And a lot of those people developed uh, really serious dependencies. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, doctors got cracked down on and it found it came, came to be known that these were really quite dangerous painkillers and they weren't as readily available anymore. And so the, the FDA made it harder to get OxyContin and hydrocodone. But these people still needed a way to feel better. And they found that if you turn, turn to cheap opiate alternatives on the street, like heroin or methadone, suboxone, or most recently fentanyl, which is usually wow. manufactured overseas and huh. can be bought very inexpensively. Um, really, I think there was a cultural addicting. And now the cheapest alternative for it is, uh, is very quite lethal stuff. And um, as far as why it is so desirable, Jerome, um, I do not know. I think that, uh, I think it speaks to, you know, people are looking for quick fixes to feel better. Uh, And uh, I think people are more willing to, to sit in their own pain and aren't as open to talking about it. And that's what we're trying to change. You know, it's trying to make it easier to talk about people's struggles. And I'm happy that like mental health is becoming more prevalent and something that people are more willing to discuss. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think there are a lot of people who are suffering in silence. Uh, But yeah, I hope that was a decent answer for you. Um, Oh yeah, it was. um, And and actually there was a, um, you talk about the Purdue Pharma um, introducing Oxycontin. There was an, I mean, it's a drama, but it was, I think, an excellent, I don't know, uh, portrayal of that whole thing. It's called Dope Sick. It was mm. on, um, I think, maybe Hulu. I was sort of thinking that, you know, in some ways, you know, a number of people were prescribed this for pain and then, you know, got hooked on it and then went to, to other things. But then just as, because it seems that so many people were using it, my thought was that not everybody that was taking those drugs had 
started out with a um, with some sort of ache or some sort of work injury because there were these pill mills that were in they call them pill mills where you could go yeah. and I don't know go to some I don't know, quote unquote doctor and they would prescribe you these pills and people would just stand outside in lines you 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 would you know it was just incredible the number of pills that they were giving up. Mm. Um, so I I don't know I guess my thought was you know is there something in our society today where people are just um, like you, like you said, looking for a quick fix to, um, the pain that they're dealing with. And, and, and like you said, discomfort, like what I yeah. loved when you said people don't want to be uncomfortable and really, and truly going to therapy is a form of discomfort. You know, you have to deal with your issues. That's not comfortable. Um, dis- <laughs> he, he makes it comfortable. Well, of course with him, it's right, right, right. But you have to be ready for that, right? You have to be ready to admit that you may have a problem and you have to be uncomfortable making changes because change is hard. But it's a lot easier to just take a pill and hopefully have it, you know, in your mind, solving a problem, right? Causing a whole slew of other problems. Well, and in terms of admitting that, I mean, to go back to, um, Miles, something you were saying earlier about the guy who maybe comes in because his wife thinks that he's drinking too much. And he initially goes in because he wants you to tell the wife that he's doing all right. <laughs> and then, that a lot. Right. <laughs> and then what, what happens then? Because, I mean, does he then, because they have to be on board in order for um, the treatment to take place, right? Or do they, what do you do then if they're not on board? I, that sounded yeah. kind of convoluted, but. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, uh, I, it's a, uh, so that individual would have to know at that point, right, Jerome? So, like, let's imagine again that, like, the wife reaches out to me and it's, and lets me know ahead of time, look, I'm looking for this person. I'm looking for a therapist for my husband. I'm concerned he has a drinking problem. So I don't sit down with that gentleman in, during our first session and say to him, hey, you know, Mike, um, your wife's worried that you have a drinking problem. What's going on, right? So uh, it's about the perspective and the tone that I'm setting with that individual, right? I have to be... And I am with all my patients, right? Impartial. I might ask a question like, Mike, um, I'm really happy that you're here in some individual individual counseling with me. Can you tell me a little bit about why we're here? Um, and then I'll have to contrast what Mike thinks he is here for with what his wife has told me she wanted her husband to get counseling for. You know, if Mike in this situation doesn't mention the drinking at all and doesn't even broach the reason why her, uh, his wife would want him to be in counseling, then that's sort of clue one to me mm-hmm. that this individual either is in such deep denial that there is a problem that he doesn't even want to bring it up or B, that this individual is hiding this from me and doesn't want it to come up. And then the impetus comes on to me to ask some probing questions to try to understand this person better, make them not feel judged, and you know, um, contrast what they say versus what the people around them are saying. Because sometimes, Jerome Constance, somebody will want their 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 uh, spouse to get counseling, and it turns out that their spouse, you know, missed something huge, um, and that maybe the, what they think is an issue isn't really so much of an issue. And this person is quietly going through something totally different. Mm. Um, 
So you you always have to do your homework. And my and my perspective in how I engage with the patient, the, the client has to be neutral, so that I don't trust anybody implicitly at face value at the outset. You can get into trouble really yeah, quickly okay. that way. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like when a <laughs> when a spouse sends their significant other to exercise. It's like, okay, so your wife said you need to lose 25 pounds. It's like, uh, she did. Oh, I, well, I, I used to get that a bunch where somebody say, oh, I want my husband to, to train with you. And then, you know, after several times of having this guy sitting across from me and I'm like, he doesn't want to do this. Yeah. He doesn't want to be here. I, now. It's, okay. Now I have to ask the wife, okay, did, have you spoken to him about this? Is he, <laughs> is he, is, on he on, is he on board with this? Does, does he want to do this? Cause if he doesn't, you know, it's going to be an entirely different process. Yeah. Tell, can you guys tell me about that a little bit? Like how you guys handle, cause like I know from my own life, like I've always enjoyed a run um, and exercising on my own terms, but I've struggled with even my own consistency in weightlifting and consistent weight training. But what do you guys do when you have people who like you're we're maybe talking about right now? Uh, don't come to session with the fire maybe that they had at first or that maybe the person that encouraged them to start training came? Well, I would say for me, I have more of a relationship with my clients. I mean, I mean, not that you don't, Jerome, but like I'm a woman, yeah, so I talk. You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I really, I have real deep relationships, you know? And I, I just had a client who was gone for like, a month. And she kept texting me like pictures, sad face. And like, she missed me. And it was so sweet. Um, but when she came back and I started training her, she's like, God, I hate you. And I was like, whoa, I was like, this is kind of like a toxic relationship. Like you missed me when we were apart and now you hate me when we're together. And she's like, but you know what? It's not about the workout. She didn't miss the workout. She missed having somebody just to vent to and to talk to. A lot of the times it's not about the workout. And that's why what, in my opinion, keeps people coming back is that they just have somebody to, like, talk to, even though, you know, and they know they're working yeah. out, too. It almost keeps their yeah. mind off the workout. I don't know. What do you think, Jerome? I mean, I, I agree with that thing about relationships. Um, and, you know, and I, I actually have a number of people who they, they're, they're fine doing cardio, but they won't weight train unless we're working together. Um, and, you know, and, and, so, and so sometimes it's kind of challenging trying to get them to do things in between. It really is a matter of trying to make them see the benefits of it. You know, it's like, you know, you may not like the way it feels, but you like the results. You like that you're able to, you know, to, to, go, on a, to go on a hike with your family. You like that you're able to put your luggage in the overhead compartment on a plane without help. Mm-hmm. You like that you're able to garden without, you know, having a backache for, you know, for three or four days. You're, you're happy that you can shovel the snow without, you know, having, having a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which so. actually brings me to just one other question for you, Miles. Do you, yeah. um, do you see a lot of, like, food addiction um, cases? Yes. Yeah, I, I would say that I do um, constant. And I would say that those addictions typically develop, though, after someone gets sober. Um, or, um, like, let's imagine, like, in this instance, 
um, this individual who has substance use disorder gets clean and then develops a really serious sugar problem or food problem. Huh. Um, that happens. That happens a lot. Um, in the case of the uh, bulimia or anorexia, we see a lot of that um, kind of co-occurring disorders happening with substance use disorder. Wow. Um, but just to say that this person has a food addiction, I don't have a lot of um, depth in that field in particular, but like gambling or pornography or gaming or drugs, it's, it's a, uh, it's filling that void. So it's, it's not something I feel like I don't have depth in. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. But it's, so, it's a similar, I mean, what you're saying is there's a similarity. I mean, and sometimes there's a trade-off between one and the other. Yes. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. That I find fascinating. Like that to me, obviously we deal with a lot of, you know, people who, um, you know, do have, issues in terms of their food. I mean, really, it's like, Mm -hmm. there are some people that I'm like, you know, they're like, well, I only had half a, you know, cheesecake. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, and I always refer, I go, oh, well, that's just like having a little bit of cocaine. So that's, that's right. That's good. Right. Well, well, that's my next question though. Is, is the, is the, is the mechanism the same? The mechanism can't be the same, right? If somebody says, oh, I'm a chocoholic versus, um, having, an addiction to a hard drug, there's a different, or is there, I guess that's my question. Is there, is there a different, I don't know, thing that's happening yeah. in the brain with, with the chocolate addiction versus the uh, addiction to an opioid? Chemically, Jerome is quite similar. Wow. Um, okay. Because like what we're talking about is essentially like our brain primarily works on three neurotransmitters, which are dopamine, uh, norepinephrine and serotonin. Um, dopamine is what we get when we, feel good. Um, our brain gives us dopamine when we eat food to reinforce, um, uh, us continuing to eat food so that, you know, we don't starve ourselves. But, you know, when you have a bite of chocolate, Jerome, and you know, when a gentleman takes a line of cocaine, um, both of you guys are getting rushes of dopamine. The person who's doing the cocaine is going to get significantly more dopamine and serotonin on top of that. Uh, and so much, so much of it, in fact, that it's going to change their neurochemistry and make someone feel worse when there's no cocaine. Mm-hmm. But, but something very similar to that happens when a person has a bar of chocolate. So if you take someone who loves chocolate, loves soda, and just have them go cold turkey off the soda with no exercise, you see the same kind of withdrawal symptoms, irritability, frustration, struggle to concentrate. Um, of course, this withdrawal is mitigated. It's not so severe that the person's like in physical agony, like we might see with harder drugs, but they are actually not that dissimilar. <laughs> wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I'm Well, I'm specifically on day three of no sugar. <laughs> no, just since we're talking about no gluten, no grains, and no alcohol. So um, <laughs> You should have warned me about that. I should have warned you. I'm, are you on Whole30, Costa? I am on Whole30. I am. Actually, my acupuncturist told me I need to cleanse my liver. And I was like, does that mean no drinking? And she was like, "Uh, yeah. I was like, okay, all right, 30 days. I got, what, 27 more to go. (laughs) I have to send you to see Miles. I know, Miles, I may need a book. It sounds like to me if you're not going through a lot of withdrawal immediately, then 
your intake probably wasn't crazy to begin with. Oh, don't worry. I'm <laughs> substituting with coffee now. So, you know, there I'm you doing, <laughs> I might need to book a session. Uh, my, my, uh, I, I do have availability on Monday. Awesome. <laughs> well, speaking of booking a session, tell us, um, where we can find you and how people can get a hold of you. Yeah, I appreciate that guys. So I am, um, I work here in the greater Chicagoland area. Uh, my office is in Glen Ellen, the Western suburbs, North of Naperville and, uh, I do both in-person and telehealth sessions. So if you're someone who um, is looking to see a clinician um, in person, I offer that as well. And if you're a little further away from Glen Ellen and making the trip sounds like a pain, but you'd still be interested in, in sitting down, then we do telehealth as well. Um, anyone can reach out to me if they'd like. Uh, my email address is miles, M-I-L-E-S, at evokecounseling.com. That's E-V-O-K-E counseling.com. Um, or you can give me a ring, um, on my work cell, which is the phone number I'm on now. Um, and you can shoot me a, a text message or a phone call, letting me know that you're interested in scheduling an intake. Um, tell us that, at, tell us that phone number. Yeah. Yeah. 916-801-4564. That's me. All right. We will make sure that we include that, um, when we get your podcast up. We really appreciate this. I would love to do coffee with you. Yeah. Um, Jerome, will you, will you oh, come with us? All right, let's yeah. get, let's definitely after, after make a date. Done, after you're done with your, uh, with your withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll Thank reach out to you for fun. sure. We'll, we'll definitely get together. We'd love to meet you in person. Definitely. Guys. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I, I probably drowned on. No, you did great. Say. This no, was awesome. Yeah, we so appreciate awesome. it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, guys. No, I appreciate you. And, um, yeah, please uh, let me know if there's anything else that you guys need from me. I'd love to, you know, do topics with you guys anytime. And let's uh, let's stay in contact. Let me know when you guys want to grab, uh, grab coffee. All right, All right. We will, for sure. Thank right. you, Miles. Right. Have a great guys. day. Okay, bye. That was, uh, I, that was really fascinating. Yeah, that was. That was a different, very different topic that we covered. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I have to be honest, I'm really, um, I I probably have never said this. I don't know if I've ever said it on air, but my mother dealt with um, severe uh, severe opioid issue in terms of um, pain medication. Oh, I didn't know that. Major, like you know, I I never really knew it until she died, and then I was like, my God, how much? I mean, the woman was on so many meds, and it made a lot of sense mm-hmm. um, as to her behaviors and. But it really rewired the way her brain, the way it worked, the things she said. Um, it's it's a, it's an amazing. I mean, she she's pretty much the only person that I know that has ever gone through a situation like that. I'm mm-hmm. luckily I don't know very many people that have gone through major addictions. Um, only my mother, the woman that gave birth to me. But you know, it's it's a really interesting topic and. It's, I would assume that man's job is extremely hard because you know how hard it is oh. to get people to just eat healthy. Well, even, even if you're willing going in, if you go, okay, I want to do this, it's still hard. Right. You know, and then that much harder if you're not on board, if your family's trying to get you to, you know, to, to make a change. Um, I mean, I'm trying to go 30 days without having a cocktail. And I got to be honest with you, I'm just trying to avoid people. 
Because I'm like, I can't, I don't want to be in a situation and, you know, where I'm like, hey, because people also peer pressure. It's like, come on, have a drink, have a drink. Why aren't you having a drink? Yeah, you that's, know, that's then they crazy. Start, that that bothers me. If, if, I'm, if you're saying you're not drinking and people keep trying to push a drink, people on you, do that. I know, I know, people do it. It's and like, you would never do that. No, of course not. I'm actually having you over for a cocktail party next week, and I'm like, oh, I guess club soda. I'm gonna get club soda wasted. Oh, well, I'll drink your, I'll drink your share of, <laughs> but, of alcohol. You know, that's it's you do. You have to really, you have to change your entire life in order to really kick a habit like that. And, um, man, he's, he's, he's a hero in my eyes. I mean, to be able to help people that way. Yeah. Um, oh, but check out, did you watch Dope Sick? No, but you know what? I've been looking for something to watch. I'm going to watch it. It, it is like, it's going to blow your mind. Okay. I mean, it, maybe we'll talk about it after, after you watch it. Maybe we'll do a podcast after, on the, after you watch it. Deal. Um, but it is, it is, it is mind blowing. I mean, mm. and it's a drama, but it pretty much lays out this whole thing with the um, with Purdue Pharma and how they were pushing these drugs and making money and and well, you'll just watch it. Okay, we'll, I will. We'll talk about Have it. you ever watched Intervention? Oh my God! I I, I meant to ask him a question yeah. about Intervention. Well, um, there's always a storyline, right? And it's always somebody has some deep trauma. I mean, that's obviously, yeah. but it's also made for TV. You know what I mean? So there's um, always got to be some sort of sad story. Mm-hmm. And it's there's always some type of issue happening in somebody's life. And it makes you as the, you know, as, as you know, the person watching think, well, no wonder why they have a drug problem or no wonder right. why they're addicted, you know? Yeah. And, and in that case, the, they aren't willing initially to go into treatment. That's, that's why they have the intervention. And the whole family has to get there to try to get this person on board to um uh to go into treatment mm-hmm. and then uh, and then you see i mean they either make it or or they don't yeah and then you always wonder you know did they stick with it yeah i mean it's a, the, i can't watch those anymore actually oh, it's, 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 it's heavy. too depressing it's heavy, yeah. way too depressing um anyhow all right uh, well we will make sure we post miles information and uh i hope you guys had a uh an eye-opening experience listening to what this man does for a living. Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for this episode. I'm Constance. Of, wait, no. <laughs> uh, whoa. I think that's it for this episode of Too Fit to Be Tied. I'm Jerome. <laughs> I'm Constance. And we'll see you next time. Hi. you think I was, you know, on hold. I know. I was like, what's going on? <laughs>